just remain standing here for just a second. All right, we're going to remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother, his brother, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. singing, I want to just shrink you all down and go into a living room, you know, <laughs> not shoot you away. So if you don't, if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter two, we are going to spend, spend a few minutes right here in John chapter two, looking at this, looking at this little story about the wedding at Cana. So Kristen and I, my wife is Kristen, we uh, spent, it, spent our year, we were engaged for a year and we spent it in different states from one another. If you've never done that, I don't, I don't recommend it, okay? <laughs> it was literally the worst. Like, I think it actually almost got the best of us once, at least once, maybe twice. I don't know, from my side. Maybe from her side, it was like 40 times. I don't know. Um, but do you know, when you, when you haven't seen somebody in a while, you know that, like, guttural f- desire that you have to see them again, right? Like, there's, there's this physical long, it's not just an emotion that you have, but it's the, this guttural feeling, this desire that you have. The Journal of American College Health says that homesickness, which is rampant in college students right now, um, can, quote, precipitate new mental health or physical health problems, such as insomnia, appetite changes, gastrointestinal upset, and even immune deficiencies and diabetes. Why? Well, because we're physical beings designed to be in physical community with one another. Like human beings, it doesn't work to be a human being without being in physical relationship with other people. And so there's, there's something unique and necessary about this like physical proximity, physical relationship with other people. And then there's something particularly devastating when we don't have that, when we feel that. And even in colleges all across the country, we're seeing the physical effects of not being in relationship with one another. So tonight we're going to look at this story in John, and we're going to see what, what can we learn, what does the gospel have to say about being in physical community with one another. So I want to start by pointing us back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis Uh, Genesis chapter 1, and all throughout the entire scripture, the Bible constantly presents us as both physical and relational beings. So in in, uh, 
in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam, or God makes Adam and Eve, and he says to Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. And then once he creates Eve, what does Adam looks at Eve, and what does he say? He doesn't say, oh, my heart. Listen, we, we don't take enough note of this. Like, he looks at him and says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like, there's a, there's a tangible physicalness to what he's experiencing uh, in, in that moment. So we're both relational and physical beings. And then you go to the end of the Bible, and the Bible ends with this giant scene in a real concrete, it's not made of concrete, made of something awesome, a city, and in that city is a wedding. Something tangible, physical, where the people of God gathered around the meal. And so we start relational and physical, and the end of the story ends with relational and physical. And so there's this design um, that we have for that. Um, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. We may think this is rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He likes matter. He invented it. Right? And so there's no better picture of that reality than a wedding. You go to a wedding, and um, there's people, and there's food, right? It's this tangible example. We have a friend getting married this summer, and the, the invitation to her wedding shower said, bring a bottle of wine and a recipe. She wants people, food, and drink. It's a wedding. It's relational, and it's physical. Now, Andy Crouch, who's the former editor of Christianity Today, says, the public moment of marriage is so significant because it corresponds to an even more profoundly intimate bodily reality, right? A wedding is like a public celebration of the most physical thing about human beings. So it's not surprising, uh, it shouldn't be surprising if we see Jesus show up for his first miracle at a wedding. Right? It's this, he, if you read it in John chapter one, he kind of collects a couple of disciples, he's maybe got like three or four, and he goes to this little town called Cana um, and shows up where his mom is. And so the fact that his mom's there, and you kind of see throughout the story that she's like helping in some way, it's probably a relative's wedding that, she's, uh, that Jesus is going to. And so Jesus uh, he is probably related somehow, and he gets his like merry band of misfits, and they show up at the wedding. And you're like, what could go wrong, right? <laughs> Jesus and his pals show up at the wedding. And so in verse three, we see that, of course, something does in fact go wrong. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, that probably doesn't strike us as very important, right? Like there's, you run out of drinks, you run out of whatever, you run down the Harris Teeter and grab a few extra ones. Well, you might as, as you might imagine, in the ancient world, it's not quite that simple to just run out and get some more wine. Um, and on top of that, in, in Jewish culture, ha it, wine was essential to have a party. Like you run out of wine, you run out of party, right? It's, so I've, I've, I think I've heard this before, but Julia Child says, uh, a party without cake is just a meeting. <laughs> So I say, a wedding without wine is just a family feud, right? Like, with no, no, no wine, no, no wedding. Like, in fact, in the ancient world, if you ran out of wine at a wedding, you could literally be sued by the guests. Like, they had literal legal ramifications to be able to sue you for destroying the party by running out of wine. And so, unlike today, where that would just kind of be a violation of etiquette, for them, running out of wine is a violation of relationship. You run out of wine, you violate the relationship. So there's this inherently like physical, limited, and fragile nature to relationships. You can't have relationships with somebody's soul. Like you're not a soul, you're a body. You, you only get to somebody else through physical, tangible things. And those things run out, right? 
We, we constantly experience this. Like we live in a society of abundance, but this is not uncommon. We know, we know it's true, right? You wanna get together with somebody and what do you say? What's the most common sentence in your vocabulary? I really wanna get together with you, but I don't have time. Time is a, is a product of being a human, physical, created being. You run out of time. We, have, we face like space and place constraints. You live too far away. Sickness keeps us at home or away from work. Um, traffic makes us late. We might get lost um, going somewhere because we either don't know where it is. We could get lost fig figuratively, literally. You can think of a hundred ways in which your relationships with other people is, is limited by the physicality of you, that we're finite, limited human beings. In one sense, I think the, the whole, the, the product of technology is all driven by this desire to overcome the limitations of that. Right, do, do it more, do it faster. We're always on, we're always connected. Um, and, but, but so often technology, all it does is serve to make it actually uh, more obvious how limited we are in the end. Right? I don't know if you've ever like FaceTimed into like a dinner party, right, or a wedding. I know people FaceTime into weddings. It's, it's sort of like, FaceTiming into a wedding is kind of like watching a video of flying over the Grand Canyon. Like you get a sense of what's happening, but you're not there. You can't go and tell somebody that you were there because being there is a different thing altogether because it's physical. Like technology can't fix that limitation of, of space and time. And so in this story, like when the wine runs out, there's no iPhone that can fix that. Like there's no technology that can make that up. The physical, the physical limitations of the situation have, are, is impeding the relationship, threatening to ruin it. And so Mary goes to Jesus and asks him to help. Now, I, I have a mother. I think you probably have a mother too. Um, when my, my mom was in charge of the house, she might have been in charge of a party. And uh, I like, there's people in the house and she kind of sees me across the room and she's like, hey, son, we're out of pizza. Like that's, that's not just a fact that she wants to inform me of. That's like a, hey, go get some more pizza, right? Like there's the, if, I don't, if I don't follow through and fix that problem, there's gonna be, there's gonna be an issue. And so this is kind of what Mary's doing. She's going to her firstborn son um, most commentators agree she's not like expecting or looking for a miracle. In fact, he's never done a miracle before. She's just looking for him to help with the problem. So she goes and says, hey, can you help this? The wine's run out. And um, he gives this kind of interesting response, right? Um, oh, am I on the same page? He, he gives this, this interesting response. And he says, woman, it's like, oh, okay. Uh, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You're a little, a little startled by this response. If you just read the story through, you're like, what, what, what a jerk. Like, I don't talk to my mama like that, right? I talk to my mama like that, it's, it, it does not end well. Um, so shouldn't, you know, he's Jesus, loving Jesus. Shouldn't he wanna help the happy couple out and, and to help fix the wine problem? But here's the problem. Here's why, here's why Jesus responds like that. Mary is asking Jesus to fix the physical wine problem. Please don't let the wine run out. It's going to wreck the party. It's going to wreck this, this could wreck this family's life. Like there's a physical problem um, that, that, that you need to help. And Jesus, like so often throughout the entire uh, gospel narratives, he's operating on this like totally different plane. Like it's a totally different wavelength. It's a deeper and more profound wavelength. Mary looks at the problem and sees a wine deficit. And so she comes and she says, please help. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And that little, my hour has not even come, like, what is he talking about? What, why does he bring that up? Like, what, what does he even mean? And so Mary is literally saying, the wine's run out, help. And Jesus responds, and if I could read between the lines, 
I think it would be something like, do you think I've come? I've come all this. I've become a human being in order to help with the wine problem. Like, you, do you see You of all people, mother, should know. That's not why. Remember the whole angel thing? I'm not here to help make the party keep going. Like, you of all people should know that. Like, I'm not here to help bad caterers. I'm not here to solve. I'm here to solve the problem behind the problem. Like, there's a problem that's causing that wine shortage. And every other physical limitation, there's a problem behind the problem. And that's what I'm here to do. Like, don't you see that? And I feel like we go like Mary to Jesus and ask him to fix our physical problems. And he goes, what? Do you think that's why I'm here? Like, do you think that your loneliness and your homesickness and your deficits of time and space and money and all the other things that are wrecking your relationships, don't you know those are just symptoms, Jesus says. Those aren't the real problem. There's a deeper problem that's causing all the other problems. So he's not, Jesus isn't minimizing the, the fact of this problem that's a real problem. Like it's a real concrete, painful problem. We're physical, like I said, relational beings, and we feel the pain of those limitations and those frailties in our nature. But we can pretend that if we just had more, you know, more, more wine, more time, more money, that the party could continue, that medicine and science and whatever else, diet and exercise can, can, can stave off our problems, but it can't. Because you know what the ultimate rupture in physical human community is? Death. It's death. Death is the ultimate end of physical community. It's the thing that we're constantly pressing up against. And we think we can, we can just get a little more here, a little more there. If Jesus can just fix the wine problem, then the party won't run out. No, the party's going to run out. Relationships are going to end because of death. And Jesus is looking at this situation saying, that's what I came to fix. That's the problem that I'm trying to fix. So we look back in Genesis, we see that we were made for ongoing physical community. We were made to live forever. And God invited us in community with each other into relationship and community with him and we said no thanks and as soon as we said that the the limitations of being a creature began to be a bad thing like limits are not bad god made adam in one space like just because adam was in the garden doesn't mean he was everywhere he had a limits aren't bad but those limits began to be painful and hard because we rejected the life-giving community of god so one of my favorite football players uh ex-favorite football players recently compared his relationship with his quarterback to spotty Wi-Fi, you know? I, and that's kind of, I think, an interesting analogy for what we, what we experience with God now. Like, we have connection with God, but, but, like, there's this ongoing physical limitation that makes it sometimes feel like we're not able to connect with him or with other people. Um, like, there's this, um, <clears throat> we were made to have an endless battery, and now we just constantly see the little red flashing thing in the corner. Remember the panic attack you have when you see that? Like that's, that's, how, that's how our physical lives are. We're constantly looking at our physical lives and seeing the little red blinky light. And so in this moment, Jesus is looking at Mary saying, I'm here to solve the death problem. I'm not here to just make the party go on. I know that's a real problem, but I'm here to solve the death problem, but there's one thing about that, and that's that my hour has not come yet. I'm not ready to do that. I'm not ready to do that. In John, the word hour always refers to, or in this context, in this sentence, Jesus' hour always refers to his death pointing to his death and resurrection. And so Jesus has come into the limitation. This is what the Christian story tells us. God made this physical world where he wanted to display his glory. We wrecked it. All of a sudden, these limitations are painful. And Jesus, to fix it, enters into that, takes on our limitations 
so that he can die. Right? The, latest, the, the, the final uh, um, supreme enemy of human community is death. Jesus is going to go into that place and bring humanity back out of it so that we can then experience the physical community that we were meant to have. That's why we'll say in the Nicene Creed in a few minutes that Jesus became fully human. It's actually one of my favorite lines in the whole creed. He became fully human. Hebrews says, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, God made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. One of the church fathers puts it like this. He says, you know how some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses? The whole city is honored. Even so with Jesus. He came into our country and dwelt in, in a house, in one body, and in consequence, the designs of the enemy against all mankind have been foiled. And the corruption of death, which formerly held them in its power, have simply ceased to be. And so Jesus is standing in the middle of this party where the wines run out, and he's thinking about his death. And if that was the end of this story, that'd be pretty, pretty sad, right? Um, John wouldn't have included it in the, in the book, I don't think, if that was the end of the story. Um, but Jesus says that, he does that, and then thinking about his death, he says, I'm going to see this entire situation, and I'm going to turn this wedding into a parable about what I'm going to do. And this little thing that's happening right now where there's a, there's, there's a threat to the party, there's a threat to relationship, I'm not here for that, but I'm going to now make this a little picture of what I am here for and what's going to happen once I do what I'm supposed to do. And so all of a sudden, this wedding meal, which is in some unimportant town with, a ne- with an unnamed couple that we don't know, with a bad caterer, like, becomes this literal foretaste of the salvation that Jesus is planning to bring. Right? It's like the hors d'oeuvres. Like it's not the banquet, but it's hors d'oeuvres. It's, a, it's an actual taste of what Jesus is going to do when he comes. And in, in verse 11, John calls it a sign. And all throughout the book of John, John is a book, the first 11 or 12 chapters of John are all about the signs of Jesus. And a sign is something that points beyond itself. It's not just a miracle. A miracle just could just be a display of power. This is a display of power that points to something else very specifically. And what is he pointing to? He's pointing to the restoration of of physical community. And the, the experience that those disciples and the people at that wedding had was a taste of what Jesus is going to bring for us in our longing for physical community. I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant and you, um, you read the menu and like just nothing just jumps off the page. And you're like, if they could just bring a sample of all of this stuff out here, then I could kind of sample the menu and I could get a taste of what, what the meal would be. That's what this is like. It's like a 3D taste of, of the restoration that Jesus is bringing. And one of the, I think one of the roadblocks that to believing that, because we see that the, the disciples in verse 11 believed it, they believed in Jesus because of this sign. They saw what it was pointing to and they believed. And one of the roadblocks for us to believe that and allow it to transform our life is that so many of the problems that we encounter in our culture, in ourselves, our frustrations, so many of them are physical, tangible problems. Like our community is constantly ruptured by that. And we have this somewhere, this vague idea that Jesus is, he came to save, to, to fix a spiritual problem. I, I don't know if that relates, if that kind of relates with you. But we have this idea, Jesus came to solve a, a, a spiritual problem, just to, to die on the cross for our sins. And we kind of bracket that out from all of the physical problems that we, that we feel. And it's true that Jesus came to solve the spiritual problem. 
But stories like this teach us that he's going to restore a lot more than that. He's going to restore the community that we need and we desire to be. So how can we combat this unbelief in our hearts? What, what, what are ways that we can combat this like, difficulty that we have believing that God is actually going to restore all things? We need to do what the disciples did that day. We need to taste and touch and see and experience a foretaste of what Jesus is bringing. We need our own version of Cana. We need our own version of this, of this wedding. This is what the church is supposed to be. This is what the church is designed to be. A foretaste of what God is going to do. A foretaste of the restoration of physical Right, so we are passing of the peace. It's not just a handshake. It's meant to actually be a sign of something greater, of the actual physical and spiritual restoration that Jesus is going to bring. So every time we come in and we do that, we experience a little taste, a little hors d'oeuvre of what God is bringing, and it feeds our faith. When we sing songs, it's, it's not just, it is, but it's not just an emotional expression of our, of our love for God. It's it's actually a physical thing that happens in this room when we sing and we hear each other sing. There's that's a physical thing that brings us together in a unity that gives us a foretaste of what Jesus is doing. Our voices create this audible foretaste of heaven, of the restoration. The C.S. Lewis quote that I read at the beginning, I left out a line. And this is, this is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. I'll read it again and I'll put the line back in. There is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life in us. We may think this is rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. The additional line is, that is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life in us. There's nowhere that the... The restoration of our physical community through the death of Christ is seen in a more tangible, visible, practical way than when we gather around the communion table. It points back to the death of Christ. It points forward to the feast. And right in this moment, it is our communal restoration together, receiving the grace of God through his body and blood. It's a 3D picture of that wedding. It's our Cana. Every time we gather and every time we take communion together, it's our foretaste of restoration. And just like at the wedding, it's a sign that points to those greater spiritual realities. I want to close with this quote just because I think it's a really clear explanation of sort of what's happening. He says, one author describes it this way. We share a loaf of unity and a cup of blessing. We participate in the body and blood of Christ. Christ is presented to us, not just represented. Communion enacts the gospel. It's a picture. It dramatizes our union with Christ, and I'm adding, and with each other in a way that words alone cannot. The table here tonight is our Cana. And not just for us, but for the world. To demonstrate what we believe about the death of Christ and how, it can, how it's going to restore all of our physical community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for um, being present in this room with us through your spirit. 
We thank you for these stories of the gospel that teach us about the love and grace and mercy that you have, that you became fully human, taking on our limitations so that you could enter into death and bring all of us as humankind back to God. And we thank you for that. We pray that you would build up our faith, that we would taste and see that you are good, and that it would encourage us and draw us back to you, back to one another. That as we gather as a new church, that you would constitute us as a foretaste of the great banquet that you're going to bring, and that many would come and taste it and follow after you. We pray this in your name.